what kind of age of harmony and peace is this if you want eugenics to be your governing science of population control? Hello, and welcome back to another Mind Matters show, everybody. And today we're happy, very happy to have back with us Matthew Eret. Matthew is a major contributor to two sites, the CanadianPatriot.org and the RisingTideFoundation.net. And we've had Matthew on uh, several months ago for a wonderful interview, and we're so happy to have him back. Matthew, welcome. Oh, it's always great to be back with you guys. Excellent. Well, you recently put out a article that is called How the Unthinkable Became Thinkable. Eric Lander, Julian Huxley, and the Awakening of Sleeping Monsters. And you also have two other articles that are waiting in the wings that we've had a chance to read for the most part. Uh, the first or the second in this series is called Eugenics, the, Force, the Fourth Industrial Revolution and the Clash of Two Systems, as well as From Russell and Hilbert to Wiener and Harari, The Disturbing Origins of Cybernetics and Transhumanism. And we've, we've had a chance to read these, Matthew, and uh, I think what's so special about them is that they present a philosophical underpinning for all of the kind of um, fourth industrial revolution, great reset, uh, one world order, uh, new technocracy developments that we're seeing on the world stage that uh, we don't quite often get in most other pieces that we read. And so uh, maybe just starting with uh, this most, the first of the three, um, if you can give us a little bit about uh, the, because you mentioned UNESCO and a lot, and the World Health Organization and a lot of these major, um, uh, major organizations that have this kind of massive impact on on public policy, mm -hmm. um, but they're underpinned by these philosophies that go back decades long, that uh, that inform what it is that they're trying to do now, which is quite interesting. So I wonder if you can uh, give us uh, a couple of key points about the yeah. what it, what is informing these, these uh, organizations and how they're being uh, used to um, implement these wide-scale policies that we're seeing now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I guess the the thing that got me on this particular path was that I had uh, Victory Day had uh, just passed the 76th anniversary of Victory Day at the end of World War II um, had just passed, and I had I'd authored an article on um, it, isn't it about time to think about finally winning World War II uh, 76 years later? Um, the point that I try to get at polemically is that yes, although we're told rightfully so that you know the fascist machine was put down in 45. Um, and the Allies won and yada, yada, a big part of that tale was not finalized. And, and that deals with, with what did not happen at Nuremberg. And when you start digging a little bit deeper uh, than the surface appearance of things, a lot of the, the causes of World War II, by that I'm, I'm referring to the, the major financial institutions in the city of London, in Wall Street, the same financiers who had put Mussolini 
on Time Magazine's uh, cover eight times, you know, before World War II even started as the miracle solution, the economic miracle solution to all of our, our woes. Um, these forces, and this includes also people like, you know, Prescott Bush, the entire like, you know, nexus of Brown Brothers Harriman, the Union Banking Corporation, the Rockefeller Foundation, all of these groups were never punished in Nuremberg. And in fact, when you get around to looking at what happened during the Cold War, these are the same organizations that reorganized themselves and ended up uh, shaping much of the past 75 years of world history to the point that this is what are the dominant forces even today. So one of the things about Hitler specifically that was so destructive, I think, was the rise and implementation, the full the full hog implementation of eugenics as a um, a new scientific religion. Um, you know, it really was. And 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 uh, Francis Galton, the cousin of Darwin, who who developed eugenics, made the point that this is it. It must become the new scientific religion to replace all uh, obsolete religions that are not compatible with the scientific management of society. Um, so this had already been done in the United States, in Canada, you know, 33 states in the U.S. by 1945 had already passed eugenics laws. Um, three, no, two provinces, Alberta and British Columbia and Canada had been, done the same. Uh, tens of thousands of people were sterilized based upon statistical um, science of, you know, like your your parents and your your grandparents and great grandparents had a predisposition to a low IQ or criminal criminal behavior and thus just by projecting taking linear extrapolations into your gene pool's future they were able to then justify scientifically well i'm sorry you have to be sterilized um and that was one form of eugenics um, that was applied aggressively but uh that is what hitler used as his model in, in the 1930s and 33 for the first wave of eugenics eugenics laws inside of nazi germany um, the major financiers behind this, like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, um, the Macy Foundation, Josiah Macy Foundation was another big one uh, that were, were sponsoring the science that were, this was something you could get a degree for. You, it was actually, you know, seen as a very normal thing and even bad for your career if you questioned the science of eugenics. It was that like ingrained as a scientific consensus. Um People became disgusted with this, so they, Hitler modeled his 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 eugenics laws off of uh, what the West had already been doing, and he just went went further, you know, and and gave it much more support. Um, so people were were rightfully disgusted when uh, when the results of this policy became publicized in 44, 45, 46, and people saw what what were the horrors uh, that that befell the world because of this, and it it gave eugenics a very bad name. And a few years ago, I had read an article, uh, not an article, I read I had read something that a friend had sent me. It was a PDF of the UNESCO, the United Nations Science and Cultural, uh, Education, Science and Cultural Organization Manifesto, um, its purpose and philosophy written by Julian Huxley, where, and it, it's a start. I mean, I encourage people can get this easily online. And and that that's what I used to found the basis of this first article in my series on uh, making the thinkable, uh, the unthinkable become thinkable. And in it, Huxley is very clear. And again, just read the first 20 pages of this 90 page or so essay uh, that the purpose of UNESCO and of the entire post-war um, system has to be to uh, make eugenics, which he says is the most important of all sciences. It's the king of all sciences is eugenics. Um, 
it's become unthinkable and we have to find a way to retool it so that this can become again thinkable and he's that's his words and also to to get people liberate people's minds from the belief in nationalism uh which is holding back an enlightened age he says um and accept and, and get them to accept a world government that would then be able to carry us into a new age of harmony and peace but again what kind of age of harmony and peace is this if you want eugenics to be your governing science of population control so this is something which it wasn't like you said it it wasn't just julian huxley and unesco in 46 but the world health organization when you read the some of the writings of its first director general who was a tavistock social engineer a psychiatrist uh named g brock chris holm it was it's bone but i mean it's 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 uh it turns your stomach because i mean here here's a guy who's a, de a a devout believer in not only world government that that's the purpose of the world health organization to bring about a, an understanding that we need a, a healthy global system um under a one world government but also to liberate uh, children from the belief in right and right and wrong that have been put into their minds by old people with old convictions from an obsolete age of, of mental sickness, uh, which he, he associates directly to nationalism, family traditions, religious dogmas. These are all obsolete. And these, he says, are the cause of mental mental uh, sickness. So the, the purpose of psychiatry and psychoanalysis uh, in his mind, is to cleanse the young generation who were being born after World War II, especially uh, from this. And and being a somebody who had worked with Tavistock, this is a, a dubious thing. And uh, one of the key guys who was his employer at Tavistock uh, is this guy, uh, Brigadier General John Rawlings Reese. He becomes the head of the World Federation of Mental Health, set up in that same year by UNESCO and the World Health Organization. Uh, so these two organizations team up, they create the World Federation of Mental Health, who <laughs> another, so uh, Rawlings Reese is now on the board and he's a guy who, again, managed Tavistock. This was an organization set up as sort of the, the psychiatric wing of British intelligence in the 19, early 1920s. He took charge in 1930. It was primarily, I mean, it, it, it was funded by the Macy Foundation, the same organization with the Rockefellers that were funding uh, eugenics, people like Ernst Rudin. Uh, who was doing uh, genetics research under Nazi Germany. Um, and and one of the, the focuses that they were looking at in Tavistock was how do you deconstruct the a human being's mind so that they can be reconstructed as the blank slate from scratch. That So that they were operating on the model that a human being is kind of like a machine with that you could like erase the mainframe, erase the operating system, and just reprogram the machine if it's not operating the way you like it. That's their. That's been their model even before modern uh, machine technology or computing te technology was developed as it is today. That was always their 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 philosophical model. It was John Locke. You know, it was this idea that human beings are fundamentally there's nothing intrinsic to the human soul. There's just we're we're to be written upon by whoever is controlling the levers of society, and that is all we are. The sum of the parts is is just on what is written. So they wanted to see. Okay, well they were looking at shock shock. Therapy. So, so people who had been trauma, traumatized by World War One were, were their first uh, case studies that they were looking at throughout the 1920s, and they they found these groups fascinating because they'd been through terrible things, torments that no human being should ever experience, and they found that this particular grouping of people who would experience who had been shell shocked um, were highly malleable, highly suggestible, 
um, they had been easily, they were easily disassociated from their former identities. And, you know, if you're a, somebody looking at human beings like lab rats, you're like, oh, this is fascinating. We can use this knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How can we extend this? And they started increasingly looking at group, group psychology. Um, So they took that knowledge and they were thinking, okay, how, what are different ways we can manage a group to have similar type of, of malleability functions. And a lot of the work that they did was also in children. Um, even today, one thing I was, I, was, I was caught by is that even in, in uh, just last year, um, there's a big scandal in Tavistock, the Tavistock Clinic exactly. today yes. uh, <laughs> over all of these transgendered kids who are being encouraged by the psychiatrists at Tavistock, uh, which have experienced like a 400% increase in, uh, in, trans, in transgender therapy and surgery of kids under the age of 18. And they're all being told, yeah, this, this is what you should be doing uh, compared to like just four years ago. And, uh, and a, a bunch of psychiatrists quit because they were like repulsed. They were saying that they're, we're actually making these kids, we're encouraging these kids to go in this direction before they've even fully formed their own identity. So you can see that they're still doing really shady stuff with the human psyche even today, but that's what they were doing back then. So this is what, what G. Brock Chris Holm, this is what Brigadier General Rawlings Reese, who are shaping these post-World War II organizations with Julian Huxley, the eugenicist, who's also, a, he becomes the president of the British Eugenic Society. You know, all of these guys are formulating these things, clearly laying out what their, their view of a healthy world order is going to be mm-hmm. and putting it into motion um, to the point that, you know, even like Whitney Webb made a recent point that uh, many of the organizations working with Oxford's AstraZeneca are things like the Galton Institute, which was just the British Eugenic Society renamed in, the ni- in 1989 or the Human Society for uh, the Human Sterilization Society for Human Betterment, which was renamed the uh, Engender Health in the 80s. Or no, no, that was that was renamed earlier. That, that was a really bad name. But it's the same freaking or- organization. <laughs> and it's working directly with the Oxford Astra- AstraZeneca uh, groups. Um, and there's other ones too. So you could, there's just a direct continuity. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, that was the, the, the overarching drive for that paper. And especially when you hear the writings of um, I, I listened to the uh, the proceedings of, uh, or some of the proceedings of this big CRISPR conference um, in 2015, which was sort of the first historic conference unveiling uh, human genetic modification technologies with CRISPR um, that had come out of the Human Genome Project under Eric Lander, who's today the, the science czar under Biden. He's a, a Rhodes Scholar mathematician who became a biophysicist, which is never, or a biologist, which is never a good match. Um, and, um, and so he ran the human genome project. They made certain discoveries in, in terms of how do you manipulate, uh, the human genome, uh, CRISPR came out of this research using E. coli that could then be vectored to target certain gene sequ- uh, DNA sequences to introduce certain mutations that you might want to have or suppress, which could be a, a good thing, frankly, I'm, I'm not, I'm not against the, the technology intrinsically mm-hmm. under, under good humanistic hands. Feasibly, this could do a lot of good maybe for humanity. You know, that has to be discussed. But the point is, when you look at the psychology of these these characters yeah. who are coming out, say, we have made the unthinkable become thinkable. And that's what uh, uh, what's his name? David Baltimore, um, Eric Lander's former boss at the uh, Whitehead Institute. He came out. That was his keynote address, the, the CRISPR conference. And then you just look at how these people are defining human beings literally as a sum of parts, kind of like a machine, the same way these eugenicists did. Um, it's a it's a bad formulation of of thinking. Um, so there, yeah, that was yeah, that was and it. and the bad formulation when you like bad ideas lead to bad consequences. And mm. the what, 
through everything you you've been saying and the um, um, reading your articles, you mentioned the psychology of these people, and the the psychology is very interesting because they they seem to have. Well, there's many components to it, but one is their view of human nature. So you mentioned it that they they see human nature as this infinitely malleable thing, is that we can we can figure out how to how to shape humanity in the in our best image, mm-hmm. you know, according to our criteria. And but then the along with that, well, inherent in that is this supreme egotism or arrogance that they know that they know the best way to do it, that they that they have the criteria, mm-hmm. and so. This is the recipe for disaster because I, I'm I'm with you. I'm not against necessarily any of these um, like technologies or even some of the ideas or the like intentions behind the ideas. But when you combine that with a person who who thinks that they know the truth about how this can how this can happen and how it should be done, and then have these massive organizations that can then implement a policy on millions of people, then that will that can and does lead to. If you're, if the idea is bad to begin with, then that will have negative results for tons of people. So, getting back to what you were saying about Huxley and um, one, of the, one of the other guys and their their, their criteria that we want to essentially um, eliminate people's um, natural inclinations towards family life and religion and old beliefs and patriotism, and we'll we'll just get rid of all that to create the a better human. <clears throat> yeah. Without the without considering that, well, maybe those are maybe those things are actually expressions of what human nature actually is, and maybe by trying to mess with that, you will actually create a monster. And look what happened, you know, in in Hitler's Germany. That I think you could say that that was uh, that was a Frankenstein monster that got created there. Um, mm-hmm. So there's this there's this strange worldview this kind of like arrogant elitism that we know how we know how to shape the world and and when you have like professional a, pro- a professional elite class with this kind of outlook and the ability to put it into place well you you were talking about um this idea of the human personality looking at at uh at people suffering soldiers suffering from shell shock or ptsd and it's like oh well what can we learn from this it's the same thing that they did with with pavlov in mm-hmm. um like his Pav- Pavlov was a was a great researcher, and he, he found out some very like important things. He was a great physiologist and actually a good psychologist in his in his later years. But um, well, in the system that he was living under, um, the, the focus was on the materialistic aspects of of his his insights into human nature and um, well on animals and the 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 transfer from that information from that information on animals to humans that about like transmarginal inhibition he's talking about that when you when you stress out an animal enough and same goes with the humans you can break down their mind and that puts them in, in such a state that they can kind of then be uh, something new can be born out of it well that's true but there are limits to it but also in what hands are are these things um, being done and you made one reference. I actually wanted you to ask about. I wanted to ask you about this. You made one res- reference to MK Ultra because this is essentially what the MK Ultra program or parts of it were all about: were um, subjecting people to um, drugs and abuse and various types of environmental stimuli to to break them down and to create something new. Of course, they had the one of their ideas was the Manchurian Candidate to be able to create like the the perfect spy that you could create an alter personality in. That could then go and, and run missions, and then they they would forget about it. But it was all it was all 
based on this this idea that the human mind could be broken down and and mm-hmm. rec- and then um, reborn from the ashes of the the, the, the disintegration that was implemented. Yeah. But um, well, yeah. I, it was an offhand reference to MK Ultra. I think you you mentioned it in in reference to um, being funded by or run by the same people involved but in UNESCO and WHO. I just wondered if that was a if that was more of an offhand comment or if if you'd found some ties between these organizations and that CIA program. Yeah, no, there, there definitely were. Um, The Macy foundation in this whole story plays a very important role. Um, And some of the characters, there's overlap. Like for example, Gregory Bateson, who uh, becomes um, a leading figure in, um, in in MKUltra is also working very closely with his wife, uh, Margaret Mead. Um, at the World Federation of Mental Health. Um, she's actually the president of the World Federation of Mental Health for uh, two years in 1952-53 at the apex of MKUltra um, when it was just kicking off. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of funding that is going through different black channels. I mean, even to this very day, there's a certain amount of opacity regarding like where the funding was actually coming from. We've identified different aspects of it. A lot of it was private foundations. Um, but the research, the application of the research that was conducted and pioneered at Tavistock was uh, used to guide a lot of the work being done in the MKUltra experiments that were happening in all over North America. A big, a big center of this was in Canada, in Montreal, where you had the Allen Memorial Institute. And uh, here we had a guy named Ewan Cameron, who uh, was a, a major sociopathic psychiatrist who just did... he. He destroyed so many lives. And even today, there's there's lawsuits from from survivors and families um, who, you know, these are people who went in for they were they had depression, postpartum depression, things like that. And, and he would just go for maximum uh, mixtures of LSD, other forms of uh, psychotropic drugs mixed with electroshock therapy uh, sensory deprivation just to see if what is needed to finally break the person into an empty shell. Um, where he, they could be created with a, from a healthy personality type. And, and as a side note, uh, Naomi Klein wrote a book. I, I don't really like Naomi Klein, but she had a, a big research team, like 30 people working on this book called Shock Doctrine. And uh, the first three chapters of that go through MKUltra. And, um, and it makes the point as well that, that there was always a self-awareness by a lot of the leading figures running MKUltra, which, which went on for about 20 years officially. It was officially disbanded in 73, but one could say it was just sort of normalized and changed gears um, in the 70s. Um, but it was always designed to, to bring about shock therapy to nations. Um, to, to, and this is sort of what guided a lot of the decision-making and policy-making for the, the Pinochet, the, the overthrow of Salvador Allende in, in Chile, or... Uh, Raul uh, Goulart in uh, Brazil a little bit earlier, um, which were, you know, Kissinger, Bechtel, Schultz engineered regime changes back then to impose um, a massive shock on the people, a a massive cleansing of, you know, of the intellectuals, of people who would be resistance, break their will, and then bring about, you know, a privatized open market system um, controlled by the Western financiers in London and Wall Street. Um, this is what they also did in, in, in Russia later on, um, in the nineties. But so the idea was always to apply this on a, on a broader sociological level globally, um, 
to bring about a certain desired behavioral modification. And people like Ewan Cameron is in constant correspondence with um, William Sargent, who wrote Battlefield of the Mind, for example, a, a major manual for these psychiatrists throughout the, the decades to um, undermine Western civilization, I mean, to, to put it frankly. Um, and he's a that's a Tavistockian fellow, like William Sargent is directly working with Tavistock. Uh, G. Brock Chrisholm and Ewan Cameron are in constant dialogue. They're constantly sharing their, their data and their information. So it, it's, it's sort of like an enmeshment of multiple organizations that are overlapping with certain controllers at nodes um, that manage it. So not everybody knows what the whole is doing. Yeah. And I think that, that gets at the other part of how this sort of thing tends to operate. Um, is that the one of the key figures that I identified in, in part three in my article um, to understand this this new fetish, this new sort of awakening where you have people like Ray Kurzweil, uh, you know, who's a, a high level Google director, um, an inventor, and, and he's a he's a big futurist, uh, a transhumanist, sorry, um, who who speaks a lot about the singularity, the point where human beings merge with machines, um, or Yuval Harari. He's another like sort of darling of the World Economic Forum, uh, one of their, their spokesmen philosophers to sort of popularize the transhumanist agenda where we're now we're going to be entering a new useless class where AI is going to render human beings effectively useless unless we merge with machines again. Or Elon Musk's Neuralink, same, same agenda. It, it, Facebook has a big orientation towards this, too. Um, it's a bit of a fantasy, but, but there, there's a big fetish around this idea of... Um, like I said, playing God, where people like Yuval Hariri say, okay, there there has been no cause, no directionality, no purposefulness. He's an atheist, he, and he, he's proud of it, uh, to the universe or to mankind until now. Now is the first time through all of this random mutation and randomness that we've come to a moment where intelligent design is finally going to govern the show. But that intelligent de the intelligent designers will not be God. It will be the people running Google, he says, and yes. Facebook. <laughs> That's his words, you know, like he's, he's like just trying to kiss ass to his masters um but they they really do have this this godlike like view and i think that the the denial of uh the existence of the human soul as you pointed out the 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 pe like people like you and cameron devoutly were opposed to the idea that there was a soul that there is a soul that there's a reason for us to be to feel connections to family uh, bonds to the past, hopes for the future, like all of these things are ephemeral. They're, 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 they're not real. Um, so they're, they all have this machine-like view of, of human nature. And uh, I think that th this indicates that they themselves are, are also sick. Like they're the ones who are ironically in need of this, yeah. of, you know, it's psychiatric help. It's an expression of their own like internal landscape. So and then yes. they, they project that internal landscape onto onto others. So you see this with a lot of philosophers in the, um, well, going back to, I can, can just list, list a few. Like there was Hobbes, of course, and and mm -hmm. even, I don't know about Machiavelli himself, but the Machiavellian philosophy, um, you can go back to Joseph de Maistre and, mm. um, and then even... Purgative uh, violence, yeah. And then, like, uh, I, I, I was, it's a tough name, but the, he was... The advisor to the three last czars, uh, Pobodinastsov, I think his name was. He was pretty much a had a, a worldview exactly like um, um, like Hobbes or Meister. And then uh, Herbert Marcuse in the Frankfurt School, and 
like the, a lot of these these a lot of these philosophers old Karl Marx they have this this view this you could call it this kind of like hollowed out view of human nature that um um and you look at a lot of their personal lives like Karl Marx um wasn't really an upstanding type of guy didn't have a very healthy ha- family life and so you look at the like the type of lives if if you could look if you could peer into the private lives of a lot of these guys today i, I think you there would be some surprises when you see uh, how they actually live their lives, but the but their their own their own internal psychology is probably the sickest, and then it's but it's their writings and their ideas that then have the effect of going out into the world and and mm-hmm. creating mayhem. So in in a funny way, it's almost like um, a lot of what they're saying is true, but if it was applied to them and not all the other people that they mm-hmm. that they think that this should be applied to, it's like well well maybe no maybe we should uh. Maybe we should isolate you guys, you know, on yeah, yeah. some island somewhere, so that so you can't uh, affect anyone, and, and maybe not have children, and then you know everyone else can just l- like live their lives like they like they should. That that I think maybe that would yeah. have a, a more positive effect on the world. Well, yeah, that's a very ironic twist. Where I, I agree with what you're saying. Like pretty much anything and everything that they're talking about doing to the wider population, it should really be inverse to where it really only applies to them. And then it would probably be fine, and mm-hmm. and the world would be better off. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you know, it, it, the 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 amount of dichotomization that they have, both in terms of cutting themselves off from the process that they're, that they're trying to control and manipulate, they don't consider themselves part of the system that they want to control. Which is why you get things like these these disturbing quotes by by Bertrand Russell, um, talking about the two layers of education that need to be sort of solidified and crystallized in this uh, healthy world order, this healthy scientific dictatorship where students can be convinced that snow is black. Um, you know, this famous quote, but, but Bertrand Russell is very clear that in the, in the, for the education, for the elites, for the masters, um, we have to encourage initiative and courage and innovation. These are like things that we want to cherish as long as there's always a loyalty to their caste. And if that loyalty is broken, off to the killing chamber. Sorry. <laughs> and then he says, you know, for for the, the 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 education system for the masses, for those who will be, he doesn't say it, but the the slave class, the 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 Morlocks, you know, um, sort of. Um, but but for that mass education, we have to encourage uh, passivity, uh, complacency you know, um, adaptability to popular opinion consensus. These are, these are virtues that we want to encourage as the ideal of that education system. And then he also has, this is in his scientific outlook in 1930, um, where he has this, this addendum where he's like, but sometimes the social engineers will encounter, uh, the odd case where a student from the lower, uh, caste will exhibit it genius qualities that would make them applicable for a membership of the higher ruling class. What do we do in those situations? And he says, well, after they're, they're thoroughly tested through and through, if they should pass their tests and give up loyalty to their, their previous cast, then we should accept them in and welcome them in. And if they don't and they fail their tests, then he, he, he loves this off to the killing chamber. <laughs> it's like, are you serious? So then you're really self-selecting for, uh, High IQ psychopathy essentially yeah. is what they would be doing. Uh, oh to yeah, just you know further entrench, uh, you know who and what they are and what they're trying to do, and that made me think of um, 
in terms of the education that you had talked about, and I think it was in the third article maybe, mm. um, where you were talking about how, what was it, guilt and popular opinion were going to be used as tools to educate and to keep people in line. And I thought that was a very poignant thing to point out, considering just what's going on with all of the uh, critical race theory, um, educate re-education and sensitivity training and all of those sorts of things, mm -hmm. which are, which are really just doing exactly that yeah, yeah. Uh, to create a permanent uh, cast of, of a sort where you are forever guilty of uh, being white and you should feel guilty about it and be or subservient Asian. or Asian or yeah. You name it, right? Uh, yeah. Pick a yeah, category and you could find a reason to be guilty about it. Um, yeah. And that, that was, again, the, the, jo jo the Josiah Macy Foundation with the World Federation of Mental Health uh, co-sponsored for two years, a series of conferences, seminars and practical application of, te of teaching methods in um, Germany in 1948, 49, 50, 51, I think it went up to. And they were applying this now to, to completely organize the transformation of the uh, the German educational system. Um, and it was largely under the guidance of Kurt Lewin, who was a Frankfurt School um, psychiatrist. He ran a lot of this, this research. And um, yeah, I go through that a little bit in the article. Um, <clears throat> but essentially, the idea was to convince the entire population, especially starting with the young, that the fault of Nazism in World War II was the Fourth Reich gene, that there's something embedded in the German persona genetically wired in the, into their DNA, um, which is fascist, warlike, uh, imperialistic. And the idea was to control via guilt. One of the techniques that that the Frankfurt School, but especially uh, Tavistock innovated, um, people like Eric Trist is a big person in this, a uh, major, major influential person in this, uh, were techniques to um, conduct mass brainwashing sessions in, 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 in groups. So you, you can basically have like a teacher, for example, in a classroom wouldn't be a teacher. It would be sort of a somebody who would uh, be a, a facilitator of bringing the group into a consensus. And what the techniques that would be utilized by these facilitators would be placed in bureaucracies and unions. And this is what happened throughout the 1950s, 60s. The entire United Nations and OECD uh, bureaucracies were built up around these organizing principles was guilt um shame if there you you sort if you you sort of try to find ways of bringing out conflict and if there's anybody within the group who exhibits self-directedness uh, a capacity to question what the, the group is thinking or to question one of the underlying rules that you're trying to get the group to adhere to um you can channel the group's uh energy onto that individual that student who's being creative and work on shaming them um, get the group to turn on the person so that you break their will and get them to ultimately uh, acquiesce to the new condition. And when, once they do that, they lose something of themselves. The more they get into the habit of acquiescing and giving up their sovereignty um, to get groupthink. And increasingly, th like this group, these groups also sponsored things with the Frankfurt School. The Macy Foundation was, a, again, a big funder of this study of, of uh, published in 4950. Um, the, the authoritarian personality came out of this research that anybody who says, asserts that they have a, tr a knowledge of a truth of something are uh, a potential fascist and Nazi. Um, so you can't trust anybody like that. So obviously, yes, fascists do think that they have absolute truth of things. Yes, that's true. But does that mean everybody who thinks that they know a truth 
like Martin Luther King Jr.? Does that make who says truths? Does that make him a fascist? Well, in their mind, yes. And so applied to uh, research and development, the engineering schools, and and as well as people at Bell Labs, other things, started applying these new techniques that encouraged groupthink uh, in science as well. So that cells of scientists were set up to co-think through things and individual genius, individual initiative was discouraged. That was flushed out. That was to be subdued because it creates problems, disequilibrium in the system you're trying to control. And what these guys want, you know, I looking at, at people like, um, um, well, Julian Huxley, uh, Norbert Wiener was a student of, of, uh, Bertrand Russell, but Bertrand Russell himself as well. A lot of these, can, these people, um, who are these social engineers, they're all trying to model a, a, a highly controlled system and a, a deterministic system of humanity. But at the same time, they need to get the system to behave like a stochastic process in its parts. So like, you know, a stochastic process is just like the random molecules inside of like a gas, a can of, of, of spray paint, you know, kind of random. There's a randomness function in the moving of the molecules as you're heating up the gas. But, you know, what's bound, bound, the, the boundary conditions of the gas are the, the, the structure of the can. Um, so they need everybody to sort of act as closely as possible to randomize stochastic like particles in the, in the system, but they have defined the system to be entropic, a closed system. That's what they say humanity is. It's, they say, okay, we, we can be defined as an absolutely closed system. And because it is closed, there's a finite amount of energy to go around to move and maintain the parts. And as the parts continue to move and use that limited energy, you get a diminishing return to all. This is like the old idea that they retweaked of John Stuart Mill, um, John Stuart Mill's approach to economics, that there's a diminishing return um, to each individual over a time function as you draw down the economic resources. So that system is always moving in a predictable way towards a heat death of the system, an ultimate inability to maintain the system like your, your gas tank would be after it uses up all of the gasoline it burns it all to move the pistons and at a certain point it's not going to make new gas that's the sort of of thinking that they've been trying to impose onto the onto society now the problem is when you have individual initiative when you have individuals who are inspired like max planck or einstein or madame curie or you know pick a genius right individuals tend to break their mold they they tend to when inspired by certain ideas of transcendental concepts of love of truth more than love of personal pleasure of thinking of your 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 progeny your your you know the, the greater good you there's concepts like this that the positivist the materialist would say oh these are just metaphysical garbage it's 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 illusion but it's like is it because every time i see examples of people who are motivated by these things they produce empirically validatable discoveries that are translatable into ways that create more energy in the system all of a sudden, I could sustain more people by the application of the discovery of the nature or structure of electricity and application of that in the form of technological progress that I didn't have when I was ignorant of that knowledge, right? It was, all, it was, it was a phenomenon that was there in nature, but we didn't know of it, so we, were, we couldn't use it. it and, and populations were, were always subjected to former resource limits, or, so we had a limited carrying capacity. So that's where I think that they, they've always and this is where it gets dirty because they know what they're doing i mean at that level they know that they're doing something unnatural by trying to smother out 
the love of family, the love of nation, the love of humanity, metaphysics, personal genius, like all of these things, to, they're, they're, they know it's unnatural, but they do it anyway because they need to, smud, to smother that for their formulas to work of randomized stochastic moments of everybody just thinking about personal fleshly pleasures in the moment. Don't think about the past. Don't trust anybody over 30. Don't think about the future. You'll be dead then, says George Bush Jr., you know. <laughs> um, and, and, and meanwhile, the people who are thinking about those things are just the small few, um, you know, groups of within the accepted uh, governing cast at the top who that who can see what the whole is doing. Nobody else can has to see what the whole is doing because they're so busy myopically being blinded by the identity you've given them, crushing their will in school. And, you know, they just they, they either they don't have the passion to care and they don't have the ability intellectually to even see what they're a part of. They don't think about context. And thus, you don't need to have everybody in on the conspiracy. You're right. It, it's a self it's a self-controlling system that needs very little input by the social engineers increasingly over time. And that seems to be kind of the uh, just the overarching theme uh, for I guess millennia uh, you could say where it doesn't it seems to me that that mode of thinking and being is what it is it it is uh, just something that exists these people have existed for millennia they will continue to exist until you know something drastic happens and changes Um but it doesn't matter, like, you know, eugenics has changed form. Mm -hmm. Malthusianism has changed form. But the essence of mm -hmm. it, the the essential idea, yeah. has never gone away. And that's what reading your, your articles really kind of uh, made clear to me was how all of, well, all of the stuff is just drapery on the... Uh, on the window that has forever been, mm -hmm. which is there's a certain select percentage of the population who are looking to control and order society in, in their own, uh, in their own image and for their own means and ends and will constantly look to justify it by any and every means necessary available to them at the time. And so that changes, you know, uh, in the 1700, 1800s, there was Malthusianism uh, and then later on, it changed to a social Darwinian concept, and mm -hmm. now it's changed to a, a critical race theory uh, type situation. Transhumanism, transhumanism, and so it it constantly changes as the times change, but the essence of it remains the same. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and it's so useful when you approach history from the standpoint of an organism, right? Like we, we, as human beings, we, we are in many ways, we can find analogs to nature in the sense that, you know, like light has both a wave-like and particle-like quality to it. And in many ways, human beings, we can learn a lot by looking at that, that metaphor in the sense that we all are finite. We're born in time. There's a moment before which we didn't really exist after which we won't exist as identities. But during this time frame, we, act, we live, we, we use our, our, our time uh, in a certain way, or we invest our energy, and we may or may not contribute to the overarching wave of the human civilization, the continuity, right? This continuous, non-discrete process of the flow and flux of humanity. Um, some people uh, contribute greatly. They amplify 
that that wave and they contribute a lot to it like a benjamin franklin type of person persona used their time really well they didn't waste time and they they contributed back into the system after they departed that still will have a, a dur durable effect long long after they're dead and then a lot of people unfortunately that right to be a part of to, to participate of ourselves back into the wave it's it's been removed from us it's been stolen from us because of the existence of this oligarchical parasitical thing this this continuity of this this um, self-organized master um, self or self-described master elite class, right? That you could find traces back um, to even like Plato's Republic in, in book six, where Plato describes exactly how this thing works. Um, he, he does like a real big no-no <laughs> for the elite, you know, by, by demonstrating the, the, the cave allegory, um, which is, you know, he's, he's just, he's exposing it. He's like, this is exactly, he doesn't say it. He can't, he doesn't have the liberty in the world that he lives in to just come out and say things directly. And I don't think he would even do it that way if, if he could, because you, you don't, you don't make a discovery by just telling somebody a crystallized answer. You have to sort of awaken cognitive dissonances. You have to induce a, a question first, right. And get the mind to move. But what he does by building up to the, the, the cave allegories, you know, he, he demonstrates, a, a scenario where people are have lived their whole lives shackled with their their necks forced to just look at a cave a cave wall with shadows cast by by an elite who who emit sounds and shadows and and move little objects and the people are are you know you pity them right you they they, they think that that is reality and he has the situation where one person by whatever means is now released and they find their way out of the cave to see that there's a higher light beyond the, simply the 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 fire but there's a light of the sun outside of the cave. And at first they want to instinctually kind of go back into the cave where, where they're, they're comfortable. But if they, if they, if they're courageous and they fight it out, they, they learn to adjust their eyes to see grass as it is and to see the light of the real world. And he makes the point uh, that if you want to be qualified as a real philosopher, and this is what a lot of the, uh, the neoplatonists today, people who call themselves Platonists, um, but are not really who are occupying seats in, in Cambridge or Oxford or, you know, Leo Strauss of the neocon, you know, the neocon teacher, he calls himself a Platonist. No, they, they like that part where it like, you know, you have an idea of an elitist philosopher who could see the transcendental nature of reality and you can then understand how to manipulate the shadows of, of the people who are in the cave. But Plato makes the point, if you want to be a real lover of wisdom, a real philosopher, you got to go back into the cave, despite the fact that people might want to kill you by, by helping them become aware that they are, that their senses are not giving them reality. So that that's that's the that's the, the the challenging part that people run away from, <laughs> um, but you have traces of this oligarchical thing throughout history, and every time humanity organizes itself um, in a certain way towards, um, like there's these moments where you can see that the potential for um, a, a creative evolutionary upshift is so high. Um, you know, one one. In part two of my series, I, I, I zero in on on this one moment, which is a useful historical inflection point um, that that is very important to understand. It's been almost completely written out of our, our history books uh, after the Civil War. And that was a moment when, you know, not only did British the British Empire exert all of its power and influence and money and everything to try to destroy the Union and undo the American Revolution from 80 years prior, but and I mean, British intelligence were, were helping out the Confederate South. Ca British Canada was a, 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 I mean, this is the Confederate Secret Society headquarters where we carried out the assassination of Lincoln from Montreal, Canada. 
um, we were we were conducting things like the Albany raids from British Canada on behalf of the Confederacy the entire time. And uh, the only thing that stopped that from going uh, towards complete dismemberment of the Union back then was that Russia stepped in under Alexander II, the great liberator, and offered the Russian fleets as a direct message to the British imperialists and French imperialists who were prepared to openly come out fully, fully backing the Confederacy. And they basically, that was a message that if you do that, that's a casus belli for Russia as well. And uh, and that kept them sort of subdued. Um, so coming out of that process, I mean, Britain had exerted itself, it had wasted itself on, on opium wars, suppressing Indian rebellions in 1859-60. Um, the Crimean Wars were, were huge expenditure to destroy Russia by sucking them into an unwinnable war in uh, in the Middle East against the Ottomans, which are teamed up with uh, the French and the British. Uh, that that was 56 that it ended, 57. Um, and Britain was was really not getting a lot of respect at that point. People were kind of waking up to this, this spider that had been just like lighting fires everywhere. I don't know if that's what spiders do, but anyway, um, <laughs> people were waking up to the nature of the uh, counterintelligence methods of this this uh, Iago style operation that the British had had honed over over many years. And I, I don't say the British because it's not the British people, but British intelligence, um, which took over Britain back in 1688 um, from from Venice and from Amsterdam. But anyway, that's a longer story. But people were waking up to this evil, this Iago type of eagle, evil that would induce people to destroy themselves. And from 1870, 1880, 1890, you had the spread globally of this other non-British system, this 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 system that was then known as the American system of political economy. And when you read the writings of, of Abraham Lincoln's economic advisor, Henry C. Carey, uh, which I cite heavily in my, in my works, uh, like unity of law, not only is he taking direct aim at Darwin, at Huxley, at Mill, at Bentham, at Malthus, who's always, he's always targeting these guys, but he's making the point that real economics must not be founded upon the worship of money, but rather on the cherishing of the human mind. How do you, how do you use money at the service of the nature of mind to make discoveries and translate those in new forms of technological progress, which requires the American system was always based not upon British free trade, which was, you know, if you look at Adam Smith, you know, he publishes Wealth of Nations in 1776 on the commission of Lord Shelburne, who was the head of British intelligence. The idea was to always create a logical scientific justification why nation states should never intervene on private financial interests. And, and regulate or protect their their financial sister uh, sister system. Uh, just do what you're good at. If you have a lot of land, that's what you do. That said said Adam Smith. That's the British system. Uh, don't develop manufacturing. That's for Britain to do. Now ignore the fact that Britain actually didn't use free trade to develop its manufacturing. But um, so everybody just if you have slaves, you just use slaves. That's what you do as a cotton plantation. You don't need industry. You don't need infrastructure because so everybody would just do cash cropping and you make you make your money that way. You buy low, sell dear. You know, there's certain like rules of of how human behavior and economic behavior work under his system of hidden hands, invisible, mysterious hands regulating things somehow. Uh, don't think about it. Don't worry. That's for God to think about it. You don't think about it. You're just a human being. You're a worm. Um, so the American system was based on, no, the use of protectionism, the direction, the directed a uh, flow of credit towards infrastructure, the Erie Canal, uh, the transcontinental uh, railways. So things that would require many years to build, you couldn't just do it for purely greed purposes. But you wanted to still, it's not communism because you want to still 
encourage private initiative and, and private enterprise. So you're giving contracts to private companies to build things, to do things that are that are real. And money is 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 both for your individual personal uh, interest as well as the interest of the whole. So you want to sort of it's a way of cultivating the character of the people towards uniting their individual self-interest with the the general welfare, which is the ideal. That's the only way democracy could ever work if you have that orientation. So Henry C. Carey is working with people all over the world with Tsar Alexander II um, and his network in Russia. Uh, Sergei Vita, the transport minister and prime minister of Russia, is applying the, the American system with uh, scientists like uh, Mendeleev, Dmitry, who discovers the periodic table. Mendeleev is, is in America for several months in the 17, 1876 Centennial Exhibition. Um, and he's studying the American system and he's made the chairman of the Committee on the Protective Tariff for Russia. This is the scientist, right? He's a total Russian patriot and he's working with these guys to bring in and build the Trans-Siberian Railway with locomotives built in Philadelphia, Baltimore, locomotive, locomotives. Um, Otto von Bismarck is doing the same thing in Germany, creating the Zollverein, uh, the customs union with a protective tariff, you know, to unify for the first time the German states under a, under a, a real unified nation, but always, but vectored on these American system principles of, of internal developments, um, long-term credit. The Meiji restoration is, is beginning to do the same thing with Henry C. Carey's collaborator, uh, E. Peshine Smith who's a, a, an American economist in, in Beijing, becomes the, the advisor to the government. And they're unveiling Baldwin locomotives in, 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 in Japan. Um, Francis Sedigia Carnot, the, the president who was later assassinated um, in 1895, he's also applying the same thing. And you got this all over the world. In Argentina, uh, you got the, it's named the Dragos Plan. The, the foreign minister is a follower of Kerry and doing the same thing in, in South America, Brazil. Same thing is happening. So globally, you have this, what, what the empire is petrified of at this point is the disintegrating effect of sovereign nation states blossoming all over the world like little fires that they can't put out anymore. They're trying to, they, they, they're trying to snuff them, but they're just like popping up left and right. It's these creative fires of sovereign expression where nations are developing full spectrum economies. And you, you could read the writings of a lot of these guys. Um, H.G. Wells talks about this crisis of the, of the empire, how this had to be stopped. Um, and he, who's H.G. Wells? I mean, he's, he's not only a founder of predict, predictive programming in the 1890s and, and onward. Um, but he's a leading Fabian Society ideologue. He's a student of a Thomas Huxley, a direct student under the normal, normal school in London uh, under Huxley, one of his prodigies. And Huxley is one of the key guys who's who diagnoses the problem of the empire. Why are they incapable create, of generating the creative solution to this problem? I think we actually talked, I'm getting deja vu, we talked about this in our last interview. Um, they, they, they got too comfortable with their uh, hegemony, their, their, and the elite class became too stagnant and decadent and didn't have the ability to have that mental flexibility to deal with the, the problem of human, human creativity. So Huxley, you know, he, he was like a low birthed, uh, somebody from a, a low, low blood, you know, low quality, dirty family in the mind of, a, of an imperialist, but he was really misanthropic and creative and he was adopted by the system he was recruited to become one of the like management consultants i guess you could say if your business is in a crisis you might want to hire a management consulting firm to evaluate <laughs> the structure and and do reforms to see if you can re rehabilitate the business and that's sort of what the british east india company the, the city of london all of that it's one integrated business so-called you know it's like a, and, and they had to do a, a reform 
a, a cleansing out. So what was done was the need to, um, as part of the Royal Society, and, and he was he, he was appointed with a lot of privileges to organize something called the X Club. Um, he became um, the controller of of a figure named Charles Darwin, whose grandpa was a really good guy, but you know he got corrupted over time, I guess, or a little misanthropic, I should say, corrupted. I don't know. He Darwin's not a bad guy. He's sympathetic. But anyway, he he Thomas Huxley's job was to come up with a a scientific um, system that would validate the British Empire's continuity and to to under the X Club in in 1865 was to bring together the the leading scientists of Britain who each had different fields of specialization in chemistry and sociology and philosophy and, and everything and bring them together to create a unified internally consistent body of knowledge that would then would have certain characteristics like the 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 elimination of all ideas of creative leaps in nature that that there would be a gradualist interpretation of nature that it would be a that the idea of the subjective and objective would be in, uh, a wall would be imposed upon the scientist and nature so that nature would be and science would be something that would be purely descriptive in nature the role of the person looking at nature would no longer be considered a part of it which was actually how a lot of the greatest discoveries were made was that people were thinking about how they were thinking about the process that they're trying to understand. Um, that's what the continentalist school of people like Alexander and Wilhelm von Humboldt, um, who created a, a massive scientific movement that was all, it was all based upon the internal aesthetical subjective qualities being reflected in nature as well that because we're made in the image of nature, we're part of nature. So why would these things not be also embedded in some form in nature is how they were all thinking. Um, so this is what what Darwin, Darwinism, had was was a useful uh, model, an explanatory model of biology that was based on gradualism, no creative leaps, randomness in the small. So all qualitative attributes that would grow and emerge in fossil records would be accounted for simply by slow gradualism and randomness. So that there'd just be like a random function of mutation happening on on some level. That would just be like trying random things out. And, and every once in a while, something would like their dice would roll just right and it would work. And that would account for why things progress as the weaker would be subdued by the stronger. And but Darwin admits in his writing that he was inspired by reading Thomas Malthus's essays on population. That's what gave him the theory by which to work, he says, in 1838. Uh, when he's like, I didn't know what to do. And then I read Malthus's uh, theory by which, uh, you know, societies progress by the strong beating out the weaker in a world of diminishing returns. And then he was like, yes, that's it. And Wallace describes the same thing, Alfred Wallace. So, you know, this was obviously very useful for people like Huxley and his controllers as a system that, that you know, anyway. Um, and they, so the X Club was the first sort of major think tank in run out of the Royal Society, as well as in Cambridge, um, you know what became sort of the node of the, the new systems controls. And out of that emerged slight tweaks with social Darwinism. Herbert Spencer was one of the, the participants of these X club meetings. Um, they, they created things like nature magazine as a propaganda instrument to promote their Darwinistic view uh, at the expense of all of the other theories of biology, which were actually, there were, you see, we're told, it's either Darwinism or nothing, or you're a creationist. It's like, no, not really. When you look at what was what other scientists were actually making penetrating discoveries into biology with this Humboldtian idea of a creative directedness, a purposefulness in the universe, James Dwight Dana was looking at cephalization and Lamarck had his, there's a lot of value there. There's Cuvier and uh, Carl Ernst von Baer who's looking at 
morphogenetic fields of a certain sort, how the, the whole is, is being organized by certain harmonics of the body, which are tied to the harmonics of, of the biosystem of nature. So there's all these fruitful discoveries that are being brushed aside as crazy creationism and only scientific, you know, Darwinism is true. But then Herbert Spencer adds to that by extrapolating that back onto human society that we eventually, you know, just weed out the, 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 uh, the weeds in the garden of, you know, of the weak being beaten out by the strong. And, and then Galton comes out, the cousin of Darwin and, and develops that a little bit further in the form of eugenics, which wins over Darwin. Darwin's like, yeah, you've made a total convert out of me. And Darwin, I, I said, he's a sympathetic guy because, you know, like he's, he really does, I think, want to figure things out. He doesn't, he doesn't know or fully understand how he's being used for political purposes. And he describes, you know, later on in his life, writing to a family member, this sad thing where he's like, I used to feel joy in my younger years for the, the poetry of Keats. Uh, I used to find joy in music and I, I can't find joy in any of these things anymore. And he says, He's self-conscious. Like, I think maybe it's my overly developed analytical uh, brain. <laughs> you know, it's sad. It's tragic. <laughs> but um, but so these guys are all essentially taking, as you said, the system of empire that was already there for thousands of years. And they're just simply like Thomas Malthus is inspired by Hobbes. You know, he's a Hobbesian. Hobbes is just the Leviathan. We always need like one singular Leviathan to control the chaos of the selfish individual bits and parts and particles of the masses, masses within the system. That's the only way we can get order. And if you're, if that's your idea of the good governance is order and equilibrium, mathematical stability, then any type of creative innovation that offsets the equilibrium is bad. That becomes evil, you know? Um, so that's what, the, the unfortunate thing is it turns you actually evil. If you, if you believe in those assumptions, then you have to make the conclusions that Thomas Malthus makes in his essay on population first edition, where he says, you know, like we have to court the plague. We have to use the, the gifts that nature gave us of war and starvation and pandemics um, as a responsible scientific manager um, in order to keep checks on population. We have to dispose of poor babies if room can't be made for them by the, by the deaths of, of old persons. You have to, you know, unfortunately, encourage those things to happen. So not everybody who thinks like a Malthusian or a eugenicist or today transhumanist, they're not in on it. They're not necessarily intrinsically bad people, but the assumptions, the unquestioned assumptions that they have about the nature of the system that they're a part of forces them into certain conclusions um, about how to manage the over excess of people. Um, I, think, I think that's a, a crucial point. Uh, Matthew, because um, what what you're doing with these articles is you're going back, you're you're looking at the assumptions based on the assumptions based on the assumptions, and then you 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 take these quotes from guys like Bertrand Russell that that you were paraphrasing earlier, um, where he talks about the two types of of people, and if it wasn't there in black and white, uh, you you wouldn't believe that these famous figures were actually saying these things so explicitly. And and you wouldn't consider the implications of of all of their uh, their their ways of thinking and their the, the types of policies that they were trying to implement, but mm -hmm. but there they are. I mean, I uh, you know I I nearly fell off my chair when I read that, um, and and there and there are several more that illustrate the point that uh, in the trappings of highly educated, highly connected. Um, uh, highly sophisticated individuals with a, a great command of language, 
and uh, a, a, a matchless uh, network of other people in culture and society and politics, there is this um, psychopathic uh, uh, will to enforce certain ideas that are uh, anti-human uh, when, when it comes right down to it. Yeah. And, and to understand that, um, that, that these, that these figures are kind of pillars, um, foundational to, uh, a lot of the organizations that are calling the shots and, and making very rapid advancement, mm. uh, in, in medical tyranny, in economics, uh, in, uh, globalism, uh, to understand that these are, you know, these were the voices, these were the, the, the leading figures that helped kind of set the groundwork for the movements that uh, the juggernauts that are, that are pushing forward in, in all of these various agendas that we're watching unfold before our very eyes right now. Um, and, and I, I do, I like the fact that you put this in the context of the great reset and Klaus Schwab there, you know, Schwab is part and parcel of this whole, uh, this whole lineage of, of, um, of anti-human thinkers who, yeah. who have mastered, mastered the language of presenting their policies as progressive and, and, and positive and life affirming mm-hmm. when, you know, just to dig a little deeper is to realize that it's so much about control on a massive level. And uh, fortunately, I think we are seeing pockets of, um, of, of light mm-hmm. come forward. We are seeing movements. We are seeing more conservative um, groupings that are uh, at least in their, in their various corners of um, influence speaking out against many of the things that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's work. And I, I think everybody is, is, is kind of, you know, waiting with bated breath a little bit and, and looking to see, you know, where we can make uh, progress or, or headway in at least stemming the tide of, of all of these collective uh, movements towards one world policy. Well, I think one, one thing that is extraordinarily important in thinking especially about people like um, Bertrand Russell. But uh, I mean, these are all people who are, are celebrated philosophers. You know, he's, he's celebrated as a great pacifist. Um, his, his history of Western philosophy is still like a source book for most philosophy departments across the world. So his interpretation of also the science history is a standard. His interpretation of what Einstein uh, discovered Einstein's method is the standard upon which when people think about what Einstein did, they're often thinking about not Einstein, but Bertrand Russell's interpretation of Einstein, or when they're thinking of Leibniz, you know, one of the first things that that Bertrand Russell published was a book on Leibniz, the on the the the, the science of of Leibniz's method, he becomes the standard bearer for all of these things. So when people even criticize the problems of Einstein or the problems of Leibniz or, or many things or the problems of Western civilization, they're actually not dealing with the thing itself. They're dealing with a scarecrow that's been created um, that creates these false debates and discussions with assumptions. Like 
the fact that, you know, Bertrand Russell spent a couple of years in, in China working with uh, Joseph Needham, one of his colleagues who was part of this, this operation. And he brings, he, he teaches a class. Mao is a student, a young Mao. Um, they're bringing in the Princeton skull and bones operation into, uh, you know, a brainwashing operation of the young elites uh, in China. And, and he is retraining the intelligentsia of China who become influenced by his interpretation of what is Western civilization. So why are you going to believe this guy who hates Western civilization and is a part of an operation to destroy it? Why are you going to take his word on what Western civilization actually is? But then the belief that there's this absolute wall between like Eastern culture, which is a feeling intuitive culture versus Western culture, which is this logical left-brained cult, you know, enlightenment civilization, uh, there's this wall of divide between these two worlds that cannot uh, have harmony. That's bullshit. I mean, it's, it's not true at all. Um, there, there's, and and so you look at how the the level that that Bertrand Russell is operating on is much more subtle, much more long game than a lot of people realize. Uh, but that that's what people have to coming out of this process as we are all born into a sick system. It's so useful to just get into the mind, the top down thinking of somebody who thinks on that level of a whole. You have to think like like a Bertrand Russell to a degree, but think about the sorts of minds who they're who they hate and despise as well. Think like by reading the writings of somebody like a Leibniz, um, you can think you can get yourself, your mindset into a state where you're you're not just focusing on one thing, but you're looking at how a multitude of different things all intersect in one idea. And that's why people like, like Leibniz um, is able to make penetrating breakthroughs in everything he touches. He just, you know, he figures out a way of thinking that allows him to tap into languages. He develops an understanding and application of like 18 languages easily, discovers the infinitesimal calculus, makes penetrating discoveries into history. He's a statesman organizing a grand strategy. He's the founder of the Prussian Academy of Sciences, the German Academy of Sciences, the he's he's made Tsar Alexander Tsar Peter the Great makes him his privy counselor, and he reorganizes the uh, the legal system of Russia as he's organizing the Russian Academy of Sciences, which becomes created a few years after he dies. Um, but people like Leibniz, you can see why why Bertrand Russell's ilk are working so hard to take control of the narrative of what a Leibniz is, because Leibniz is also organizing. He's he's you know on the verge of becoming the prime minister of the woman who's going to become the heir to the British, the British throne, uh, Sophie of Hanover, um, who's his student. And she's like next in line for the throne of Britain after Anne, Queen Anne dies. And he's working with different anti-imperialist uh, groups like Robert Harley, um, who's the prime minister of England, Jonathan Swift, who's working with Harley uh, to create um a national bank of England, a national land bank in opposition to breaking the control of the bank of England that had just been set up after the glorious revolution in, in 1694. So these guys are all trying to create, to bring back a real uh, patriotic humanistic uh, policymaking process within uh, Britain in opposition to this parasitical thing, trying to then take over. And Leibniz is in the middle of so many things. He's working with um, missionaries uh, work, who are tied to the 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 Chinese government under uh, Emperor Kangxi Kangxi Emperor, and he's having you know back and forth uh, with these groups, looking at well, what are the, the the different scientific discoveries in Asia? I mean, so Leibniz discovers and creates the first calculating machines, 
um, using a binary system that he develops from the I Ching. He, he develops a, a grand strategy of infrastructure worked out that he and he's writing about the the Russian Chinese alliance that could build infrastructure together. Great works with a focus on science, on arts, on creativity, like unifying these different domains of human thought into institutions that would transcend individual lives. And they're, he's, he's an institution creator. Um, and and his in his view of this in his uh, writings on China, he actually has a, a Chinese magazine called Nova Cinema. Um, uh, I can't pronounce it. Anyway, it's a Latin name, but it's all it's basically his news on China. And he, he's writing his strategies for breaking the control of oligarchy by getting these these different cultures to unify, to work together on building th- great products together that would uplift everybody in between Russia and China and also Europe. Um, he's having uh, interactions with Cotton Mather, uh, not Cotton Mather, uh, John Winthrop in America, who's also a leading scientist. And, and he's having thousands of correspondences, cutting edge stuff. So Bertrand Russell, I think this is the thing. To understand the, the growth of, of AI, what I try to get to in part three of my, my series, is you got to look at B- Bertrand Russell's project, with he, which he sets up in 1900 at, at a Future of Mathematics conference um, with... So he's working with this guy, David Hilbert, and Bertrand Russell and Hilbert together um, launch a program to try to mathematize all of science. Because at the time, if you look at the 1880s, 1890s, the question is, which is controlling which? Is it physics controlling mathematics or is it mathematics, which is leading in the dance between physics, which is going to control how the mind operates when it's trying to penetrate and map out an understanding of the universe? And a lot of discoveries are happening, right? Discoveries of, of, of uh, radiation, uh, Curie's discoveries are all happening. Um, the quantum, the world of the quantum is of, of action. The, the Planck constant is being opened up at that moment, 1900. Um, and there's just, there's discoveries on every field. And it's becoming very clear that mathematics is not holding the solutions to these discoveries because the math only describes what no, is known up until that moment. But a new discovery requires both understanding your math, but then leaping outside of it. And then later on, you could find a way to find mathematical symbolic expression for your discovery, which has certain constants about it. But it doesn't, it's, it, it rarely ever happens because, I don't think it ever happens because of the math. And what these guys are, are basically trying to do, what, what Hilbert sets out in his 23 problems at this Future of Mathematics, this International Mathematics Conference that brings together the brightest minds of mathematics around the world, is to, um, and some of the, the, the some of the 23 problems he sets out are, are legit problems, like the Riemann problem, the nature of prime numbers uh, that are not forecastable. Like even today, we don't know how to forecast the next prime number. There's no formula organizing their unfolding that we can identify. So these are all like legit problems. But then there's some of them early on, like number two and number six, which call for a total systemization uh, and reduction of all uh, mathematics into a new unified language of self-internal consistency that can be represented as logic. And that logic can self also be represented mathematically. Um, that would just create sort of a, a, a purely formalistic cage that could describe the entire universe that could be reducible to a limited set of axioms and postulates. So the idea of the infinite of transcendentals would be eliminated from that. And, and, and the mind, which is finite in their model, right? The mind is the brain and the brain is finite because it's the sum of our senses. Um, there's no metaphysics that mean anything that has value in that world. Um, then if you can reduce everything, you could then just do purely deductive or inductive extrapolations of your basic, of either, um, 
a phenomenon that you would observe and and describe mathematically down to, you know, this is this because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this assumption, this this mm -hmm. core axiom, you know, and then you could extrapolate outwards that way too. And in their world, you could have like a mathematical description of the entire universe from beginning to end in time as a limited thing, also in space, because as soon as, soon as you put boundary conditions on it, in time, you also put boundary conditions in space because it could only, you know, grow at a certain speed or whatever. So there's, you got problems right there, right? Because all of a sudden you have to assume now the existence of a universe outside of which there is no universe or before which there was not a universe. So that's already a problem, but they don't want to look at that. But so what Bertrand Russell then sets out to do is to achieve this goal of mathematizing the universe in the form of a three volume set of the Principia Mathematica. In, in published between 1910 and 1913. In 1913, um, one of his star pupils is a, a young mathematics protege from America, um, uh, Norbert Wiener. Wiener. Yeah, that's him. Wiener is, is now brought to Trinity College in Cambridge. He's met by Russell, brought into Russell's like small coterie of talented young boys. Uh, these guys like doing that, um, whether it's Milner and Milner's Kindergarten or whether it's William Yandel Elliott and the... Uh, Chatham House of Harvard and his young boys of Kissinger and, and Brzezinski or whatever. But there's always like these. Eh. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so Norbert Wiener is part of this little group. Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein is another one uh, who's a, a, a member of this. Russell himself is a Cambridge apostle and him and another Cambridge apostle uh, named Albert North, North, uh, Alfred North Whitehead, who's Russell's teacher at Cambridge earlier. They together fulfill this project of, of drafting in, you know, this, this Principia, which spends something like 80 pages just to like prove mathematically why two plus two is four or something. Um, and it's a, it's a success. It's considered like the major breakthrough in logic and, and, and mathematical logic ever untouchable. And, uh, and young, uh, Norbert Wiener is puts himself on a life's mission to find a practical application for this to create ways of applying this to human society's governance. Now, one of the core assumptions of Bertrand Russell's worldview that I, I, I quote in, I think my third paper is the view on entropy. He's of the view that um, entropy is an absolute, the, the second law of thermodynamics is an absolute fundamental quality of the universe. And ultimately thus that the universe is going to uh, die. A, a heat death. And it's only when we embrace that despair um, that we can achieve human health, that the human being could become, uh, actually, he says it right here. Um, I, just, I just pulled it up as a quote. Um, he says that that man, this is Bertrand Russell in 1903, that man is the product of causes that have no prevision in the end they were achieving, right? It's just random. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcomes of accidental collocations of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve individual life beyond the grave. He's offended by the by by Socrates' proof of the immortality of the soul and the phaedo. Um, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all of the inspiration, all of the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. That And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruin in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can stand, can hope to stand. 
only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. And I just think that that, that quote by Russell, it's just such a, it's sad on the one hand, it's like a, he's just, but he's just trying to, it's like somebody just telling you how depressed they are about their belief in the purposelessness of their life. And they're just demanding that you find the same despair that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, just be as weak as I am. Look at me, I'm drowning. Come down into the fucking depths of the water like me. It's like, well, I'm already up here not not drowning, enjoying the oxygen. Why would I go down there with you? Uh, he's like, no, you're, you're wrong. You're a delusional fool if you think that oxygen is is healthy or, or, or your natural state. Here, take this, this ball and chain, hold on to it and get into the water and come down with me. I'll show you. I'll prove it to you. And, and not uh, and not only that, th- this is the way you should be thinking. This yeah. is the way you must think. And and I have all of these uh, these people around me who believe the same. And and you ought to think this way. And we're going to make sure that you think this way. Oh, well I, said. Yeah, that's because, exactly because science. Because, because science. science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because science. No, exactly. It's mockery. And um, and that's how they sort of corral the herd is to is through largely mockery and, and elitism. Like, oh, you don't want to be seen sounding like you're denying this obvious truth that all of these smart people believe and you want to be overheard believing too, right? It's like, yeah, I guess that modern art, that abstract painting, uh, and the, you know, th- I guess that really is pretty deep. I didn't, I didn't look at first. I thought it was just somebody shitting on a canvas. No, I guess it is com- deep. Yeah. <laughs> Way to be judged. But these smart people you think are around you. But the funny uh, thing is, the funny thing is with, with that quote is that it's it's quite uh, it's quite beautifully written, right? It's yeah. uh, so it's got a little poetic quality of it, right. uh, yeah. So the, there's the poetic quality that he's imbuing this uh, like nihilistic diatribe in, which it, it's a funny it's a funny uh, juxtaposition yeah. that um, that even in the act even in the act of defending the meaninglessness of the universe, part of him is striving to put it in a coherent and beautiful form <laughs> the mm-hmm. very things that he that he denies exist and absolutely have any meaning no a lot of these guys working with russell like uh george bernard shaw who's another anti-human pro-eugenics fabian society leader um he's also you know he's got a certain poetic quality as does hg uh, wells the creative mm-hmm. total perversion of creativity though and and they're walking self-contradictions like you said um but then, yeah, like Norbert Wiener, I, I mean, I just finished reading his books on cybernetics and the human use of human beings, um, which are, are, you know, this guy is, he's living his life's mission to fulfilling this, to create a language for the governing class to manage the system. And you got to keep in mind, in the 19th century, again, not only were, did you have this burst of national sovereignty spreading around the world, where the whole was finally being organized as a community of principle, a harmony of parts working together with no absolute dichotomized class struggles or anything like that. Um, It was an idea of a love of the future, a love of progress that was unifying the behavior of foreign policy around the world. Uh, William Gilpin, the the former bodyguard of Lincoln and the first governor of Colorado, becomes the champion of the world land bridge of of rail uh, through the Bering Strait where you know the american built trans siberian would connect through alaska into the can into canada in to, and connect to the transcontinental of the us and he had grids all the way through africa this was all accompanying also a burst of of inspiration of optimism that was accompanying discoveries in science of all fields so it was a lot of uncertainty a lot of like rich potential 
and and the the unipolar system of empire that could only control in this homogenized leviathan like anti-creative way was like disintegrating so you know you had the fabian society created in 1886 you had the round table movement in uh, oxford created in 18 uh, 1902 with the uh, rhodes trust uh, will of, of Cecil Rhodes, which created the, the roundtable movement uh, as an international sort of grouping of think tanks that coordinated the new British empire policy to recapture the United States, uh, created a new, the first version of this was an imperial federation, but then it, it transmogrified into the League of Nations later on. That's what the roundtable movement created as their next phase when that the first one didn't work. They're like, okay, let's do a, a one world government that way. And get rid of nation states and create a one world military, a one world economy under the Bank of England. Uh, that didn't work. And uh, and they're all interfacing each with each other, right? So the X Club is sort of the ideological sort of driving seat through Cambridge and the Royal Society of London is sort of playing into that. That's sort of creating the, the guiding posts. But then you have these, these doers, uh, think tanks, the Fabian Society, as far as the infiltration of governments, the indoctrination of talented elites. And their their redeployment back into whatever target country you want to subvert, uh, they're doing that through the London School of Economics. That's their school that uh, Mackinder is the director of. You know, the founder of geopolitics. And then you have Oxford doing the same thing with a different branch of talented people through the Rhodes Scholarship Program. Um, and again, they're just throughout the 20th century. You could just see these groups interfacing so much. It's like different flavors of the same evil. Um, setting up things like the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States. That's the Canadian or the the, the American uh, Roundtable Movement. Um, so you got that going on, and you know Norbert Wiener is now in World War II. He's in charge of developing systems of radar. Um, he's doing a lot of work on feedback loops on because they have to figure out like you know when you're when you when you want to shoot down a, a plane or a missile, um, it's it's there's a time function where the radar is going to have to, you know, there's time that it takes to get the information back of the position and velocity of the, the plane. So, and then the, the, the person controlling the, the, the guns or the missiles, the anti-aircraft missiles have to then like plug in the data, the positions, and then shoot it down. That's, that's a lot of equations. So he's like looking at the problems of information systems. How does the feedback loops happen? How do you accelerate the density of the time function, right? How do you forecast a linear extrapolation of a, of a, of, of a thing's velocity and momentum into the future? to shoot down where it will be, right? So you got these these different ideas that have a usefulness, obviously, in, in, in warfare and other, other things. Knowing what the weather is going to be in a couple of days is useful. That, you know, these things are useful. Um, but then he's coming back now, always governed by the, the Bertrand Russell challenge of formulating now a, co a comprehensive system. This is what, what Huxley was trying to do with the X Club earlier. And, and he calls it cybernetics. Uh, or it, it's basically the, the, the it's a, based on a Greek word, Gubernetes, uh, which is where government comes from. And the idea of cybernetics is that you have a helmsman in a boat that is the only person who needs to know what the boat is doing. They, there's only one person of the thousands of people who might be in this giant boat, each doing their local specialized thing. Only one helmsman needs to have knowledge of celestial astronomy, the knowledge of what all of the parts are doing, but nobody else does. They could just focus on their local thing. Um, and this is like, aha. And the Macy Foundation, which had been also co-sponsoring, like I mentioned, all of this eugenics work, um, they become the founder of the, or the, the sponsor of the Macy Conferences on Cybernetics between 1943 and 1953. Um, Wiener is 
sort of the trendsetter, the guy who's sort of managing, pulling the stuff together. And he's creating systems of, of again, information systems theory, the idea of, of self-learning machines, that machines can do essentially what the human, human beings can do, but better. That's Norbert Wiener putting this stuff out in, in the, the formulation that we currently have today. That's, that's him. Um, and he's, he's only using case studies that don't involve real human creativity. He's using case studies of like, you know, playing chess and how, you know, you could create a situation where a computer could learn from past chess moves and um, incorporate that into beating and improving the, the computer's quality. And it's like, yeah, that's true. That's proven to be true with Go and chess. Because these are all games that are defined by a fixed set of rules that you could plug in. That's chess. You you know, it teaches you to think in a certain way, like a computer. With that also induces maybe some rage in a lot of people too. Because anyway, it's not. There's more to human mind than that. Um, but he doesn't look at that. He just looks at all of these case studies where we think like that. And so obviously, yes, you can make an argument that that computers can replace us and do do that job better. Um, but in terms of uh, making discoveries like Max Planck was doing, or like, like for example, um, what's his name? Um, the uncertainty principle. Um, Einstein's young friend, what's his name? Heisenberg? Nope. No, no, not the uncertainty. Sorry, the unprovability uh, theorem. On the, the, Gödel? Kurt Gödel, yeah, who, who develops the, uh, in 1932. He's like disgusted by, he's horrified by this line of thought. And Gödel is a follower, of, a real follower of Leibniz, not, not the Bertrand Russell kind. And Gödel uh, writes this on formerly undecidable propositions of the Principia Mathematica in 1932, which pisses off Russell. Alfred White, Whitehead's class here, and he's like, "Okay, you, you got you got us." <laughs> but but in this in this beautiful little little booklet, I mean, he he uses their technique of using mathematical logic to prove that there can be no closed, self consistent system of descriptive math. There's nothing no nothing you could say that could be in a hundred percent thoroughly internally consistent based upon its own internal assumptions because there's always implied something outside of every system basically is how any he, he does it in a way that i i can't I, i'm not smart enough to fully fully internalize this whole thing but he does it in a really really clear way and um it demonstrates that the the universe ultimately unlike what Bertrand Russell or Norbert Wiener want to believe is that the there's an openness an open system quality to everything, including something as, as uh, specific as math, um, which is a reflection of a higher reality. So despite that, dis despite the, the fact that a, a machine couldn't do what he did, um, but, um, they, they continue on with their project. And the Macy conferences throughout this 10-year period, it happens every six months, they're bringing together sociologists, people like Eric Trist, Kurt Lewin, like I said, from the, 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 the Frankfurt School, are frequent participants. Herbert Marcuse is coming through this thing. Uh, Adorno, uh, also a lot of Frankfurt School people, a lot of Tavistock people, um, a, a lot of physicists, a lot of mathematicians, a lot of scientists. Um, John von Neumann, uh, Oscar Morgenstern, uh, who are game theorists, are also frequent participants. And they're trying to create this new comprehensive logic. Uh, the Macy Foundation also is a, a major sponsor of LSD. So... Um, a lot of the spread of LSD is happening because direct directly because of the Macy Foundation's uh, role in doing that work, um, <clears throat> including getting Ken Kesey into the process, sponsoring Albert uh, Aldous Huxley's work. Um, Aldous Huxley is recruiting uh, different people, like what's his name, the guru of uh, LSD. What's his name? Uh, 
uh, Tim Leary? Leary. Yeah, yeah, him. Yeah, who describes his own discussions with with Aldous Huxley um, in a book he wrote. No, no, it was an interview we gave in the seventies where he's like, "Yeah, well, the CIA uh, is great." <laughs> he's like, "Yeah," and he's like openly talking about how the CIA definitely sponsored uh, and brought you know LSD around all these campuses and. And that's just awesome. <laughs> and he talks about how Aldous Huxley told him that the real enemy to humanity is a uh, monotheistic religion. And the time has come for a new um, humanistic paganism, uh, which can only be done by the this philosophy built around doors of perception. And he lo- again, these guys just love it. But the Macy Foundation is, is so there's a lot of overlap here. Right. Um, and and so Norbert Wiener is 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 creating a logic of a highly compartmentalized governing structure, which is then adopted by, again, the OECD, uh, a lot of United Nations organizations. It's infesting bureaucracies, this idea of cybernetics. And you've got this overbloating of every government. Uh, in Canada, one of the biggest participants in adherence of this is uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who writes, and I, I got a little quote from him in part three in 1969, right as he's doing his major reform of the Canadian uh, government. Um, around the Privy Council office, which is like the the, the node, the, the the central nervous system node. Um, he's like, cybernetics has given us a tool to direct human civilization for the first time ever. We will not let this go. Um, and he does it for the next four years. He's organizing and overhauling the entire Canadian government um, and creating this giant, like maximal overbloated bureaucracies. And only again, him and a small coterie of people like Maurice Lamontagne, um, who is a co-founder of the Club of Rome with Alexander King. Alexander King is coming in and out of Canada because they it's a maximum controlled zone at that point. Um, and they're they're using they're they're actually creating that here where a, just a small group of helmsmen control the the levers of the system. Um, every time there's there's nation national leaders that arise that tend to resist this thing, like John F. Kennedy or Bobby Kennedy or Enrico Mattei in Italy, or you know, you got this across the board, they're they're eliminated. And you've got these either petrified people like Lyndon Johnson or, or outright just total technocrats like Henry Kissinger and, and George Saltz who are overseeing the implementation of this, these sorts of things across the U.S. And that, that becomes the basis for today's modern deep state. So when people talk about deep state, they have to have this in their mind. Otherwise, it's just a mystical, weird thing. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, it, go on. It, it's just I, was, I just wanted to comment. It, it's, yeah. it's very interesting to see how son Justin is carrying on so well in the footsteps of, uh, of his dad in Canada, the the polite Canadians. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm wondering Matthew, if you wanted to make a a kind of a closing point. And then I think given the, the sprawling nature of all this information and and all this research, if we might have you on again in the near future and to, to continue this, especially where it gets into the, the kind of contemporary deep state and how, all of these organizations are now, um, as you illustrate in your mm. in your first article, kind of manifesting all of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I I think one of the things that again I couldn't implore people to do any more uh, fervently is to just read the things that scare the oligarchy. I mean, I I've been sort of one of my my themes that I've been hammering at. I'm going to make this part four, part five of my series is what was Leibniz actually doing? What was his method of thinking? Why was he, uh, why was he at war with the Newtonians in the, the Leibniz Clark correspondences? Why did, why did the, the Newtonians in the Royal Society that had just taken over England, why did they need to steal 
the discovery of the calculus from Leibniz and say Newton did it. And, you know, they created a whole scandal around that where obviously Isaac, uh, Isaac Newton plagiarized these things and many other things, including his inverse square law uh, from people like real Pythag modern Pythagoreans like like Leibniz or like Kepler or like Huygens or like Fermat or Pascal. These were people who were making discoveries. Um, so I think by reading those sorts of writings of Leibniz, which are available, you, they're not for specialists only. You, you could be a layman and still get a lot of, of deep insight into the nature of the human mind, government, economics, everything out of that, as well as the nature of just the universe. Um, people like John von, uh, sorry, uh, Norbert Wiener is saying directly that the high priest of cybernetics is Gottfried Leibniz. He says that, and he's sort of doing what, what Russell is doing. He's like, yeah, we love Leibniz. He, uh, he basically just, uh, he's like the founder of modern information systems theory. Great. Cybernetics. That's, that's Leibniz. It's like, no, it's not. Leibniz believed in human creativity. Um, and, and when Leibniz was, was striving and what Kurt Gödel died doing, you know, you got to keep this in mind as well. Gödel died by starvation. He died. And this is serious in, in 1970, I think six or seven, no, 72. And Kurt Gödel died because he was, he discovered and he wrote about this that there was an ongoing conspiracy led by Bertrand Russell to destroy Leibniz's writings. Even today, like 90% of Leibniz's writings are not available for public access. You can't, can't get them. And uh, Oscar Morgenstern, he takes Oscar Morgenstern, who doesn't believe him, to a, a reference library. And he's like, look, there's these references to the existence of these different Leibniz works. Let's go in and try to find them. Oh, they're, and Oscar Morgenstern writes in 1952. Like, could you believe it? They're they actually, they were all removed. They're all gone. <laughs> And, uh, and this is documented in, in Kurt Gödel's um, uh, biographer uh, who writes this and documents this, this transaction. But Gödel, but, but, like I said, he dies. Why does he die? Why does he starve? Because he's convinced that there's an, a, a conspiracy to poison and kill him by Bertrand Russell. And, uh, and he's probably on some degree right. Um, and he won't eat food unless his wife serves it to him and she gets sick for a couple of weeks, can't feed him, and he dies. So, you know, you, you've got this, this thing which is very much afraid of a quality of creative genius that was exemplified by people like Max Planck. You know, you, I know, Harrison, you read uh, Planck's Philosophy of Physics, pure Leibniz right there. Um, Einstein as well was a, was a major fan uh, and, and a practitioner of this. And, and they, it produces a living refutation of their system because the only way you can refute that human beings are, are, are not... Uh, replaceable by machines is to tap into your non-machine like qualities of thought. If you don't do it, you can't fundamentally. And that's the problem why most people think that Elon Musk is, is really brilliant right now. <laughs> they think he's like a real brilliant genius. This guy has, no, he's a synthetic personality. He's obviously like a cardboard cutout who like really believes crazy shit that obviously human beings will be replaced by AI unless we merge with machines mm -hmm. or that like windmills and solar panels will obviously take over the energy needs of all of society, obviously at the singularity. It's like, no, scientifically, that's not true. Anybody who is, who is half a brain and looks at basic facts knows that that's not true, but you believe it. Um, so you're a synthetic personality. You're like many of these cardboard cutouts peppering our, our, our landscape historically, like Newton or Dar Darwin, who never discovered anything. Um, but there's political motives behind it. But people believe it because they have not tapped into those inner, inner qualities of heart, mind that they have access to, or they should, if they were given those opportunities in a non-oligarchical system of education and culture. So we have to sort of take it onto ourselves to to read the writings of those original sources like Plato. Read, immerse yourself over a month of reading through Plato's dialogues. See what happens in your mind. You know, take notes. Uh, read Leibniz's discourses on metaphysics or his 
don't go to the methodology. This is the last thing you wrote. It's like the condensed, the condensement of a lot of deep ideas. You got to go through some other stuff first. But um, you know, read the writings of of Planck, of Einstein, and on their views on philosophy and method, and you you will find those things being much more in coherence with your own powers of reason. Uh, it'll be much more natural to do than you would even imagine. You don't. It's not based on like memorizing shit you're being told to mem- memorize to pass a test in high school, which is why I failed all my my math tests in high school. Because, you know, I wanted to know, why is this symbol true? Why, why is this formula true? I couldn't get an answer. So I'm like, I, I can't hold that in my mind. <laughs> but 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 try to actually look at what Leibniz does. He's actually taking you through, like, why is the infinitesimal calculus right? He's actually taking you through what, here's the physical experiment I did. I, I used this hanging chain. It has these forces of gravity that are infinitely changing at every infinitesimal moment. And I can now develop questions, paradoxes that I can test out to see what is the unifying, you know, a characteristic of a hanging chain and and since all hanging chains can be made different is there a unifying uh, process that can describe them all at a differential as well as an integral um at every differential moment as well as the integral as a whole um the one and the many so it's it's doable it's 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 accessible it's more accessible than people might realize and and i would say if they want on the uh, rising tide foundation website you know every week we host uh weekly lectures with experts on various fields from various fields. Um, you know, that's every Sunday. People can just write an email to info at risingtidefoundation.net and get an invite to our live Sunday afternoon lectures. We also do readings. We have study groups that meet up during the week weeknights and read over Zoom and work through these things. Right now, we're about to start working on Leibniz's discourses on metaphysics um, starting this Wednesday. So if people want to, again, be a part of those things and read along and do the work, um, they can do that. Again, just send the email out. And uh, on the Rising Tide Foundation website, if they go to the very bottom of that, risingtidefoundation.net, my wife and I, uh, Cynthia, who who runs this with me, we set up a library of Alexandria, a digital library of Alexandria, where there's like an index of some of the the greatest minds that we know about. And we just put them in alphabetical order and found original writings that you could just click on Leibniz or Vernadsky or Einstein and just get their original writings online. And, you know, I don't know how long that they will be made available online. Things are you know, shaky right now, but they're there. So, uh, that's, a, that's some, those are the resources are there. That's all I'm saying. Excellent. And, uh, I don't think this conversation would be complete unless I, or someone made a, at least a, a brief mention of resurrection order rule. Uh, we're, we're finally into, uh, about a 40% into season five, Matthew, where <laughs> order rule is talking to his sons and says the foundation of the state the strength of the state is the family. And um, it, it was a very basic, simple, but powerful talk he gives his sons, uh, one of them being Osman, the, the future of, uh, of, of the, the Turkish state. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we, we did manage to throw in a resurrection or a rule in there. But, but really a, a fascinating... Uh, discussion of, of all of these ideas and interests and organizations. And I do hope you uh, include that story about Gödel and Russell and yeah. uh, Leibniz's, you know, the, the Stalinization of Leibniz's uh, of works. That sounds like just an incredible story in and of itself. Um, and what can I say? We, you know, it's such a pleasure to listen to you and to talk to you and go over these truths and, and, you know, we look forward to speaking with you again and 
and reading these articles. And once again, uh, risingtidefoundation.net and canadianpatriot.org is where you can find a lot of these articles. Also, Strategic Culture Foundation and SOT.net is where we're going to be publishing some of these things as well. So, as always, a, a real pleasure, Matthew. Thank you. And, and thank you guys for, again, setting up this oasis of ideas on the internet. I, I really appreciate the, the work that you guys go through as well. And it's always a pleasure to be on. And anytime you want to have this chat again, uh, and we'll, we can continue this into so many directions, let me know. Right. Will do. Will do. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye.